Section 3 of the Anzac Book. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Landing by a Man of the Tenth. Come on, lads. Have a good hot supper. There's business doing. So spoke number 10 platoon sergeant of the 10th Australian Battalion to his men. Lying about in all sorts of odd corners aboard the battleship Prince of Wales. In the first hour of the morning of April 25th, 1915. The ship, or her company, had provided a hot stew of bully beef. And the lads set to and took what proved, alas to many, their last real meal together. They laugh and joke as though picnicking. Then a voice. Fall in, comes ringing down the ladder way from the deck above. The boys swing on their heavy equipment, grasp their rifles, silently make their way on deck and stand in grim black masses. All lights are out and only harsh low commands break the silence. This way number 9, number 10, C Company. Almost blindly we grope our way to the ladder leading to the huge barge below which is already half full of silent grim men, who seem to realise that at last, after eight months of hard solid training in Australia, Egypt and Lemnos Island, they are now to be called upon to carry out the object of it all. Full up, sir, whispers the midshipman in the barge. Cast off and drift astern, says the ship's officer in charge of the embarkation. Slowly we drift astern, until the boat stops with a jerk and twang goes the holster that couples the boats and barges together. Silently, the boats are filled with men, and silently drop astern of the big ship, until, all being filled, the order is given to the small steamboats. Full steam ahead. Away we go, racing and bounding, dipping and rolling, now in a straight line, now in a half circle, on through the night. The moon has just about sunk below the horizon. Looking back, we can see the battleships coming on slowly in our rear, ready to cover our attack. All at once, our pinnace gives a great start forward, and away we go, for land just discernible 100 yards away on our left. Then, crack crack, ping ping, zip zip, trenches full of rifles upon the shore, and surrounding hills open on us, and machine guns, hidden in gullies or redoubts, increase the murderous hail. Oars are splintered, boats are perforated. A sharp moan, a low gurgling cry, tells of a comrade hit. Boats ground in four or five feet of water, owing to the human weight contained in them. We scramble out, struggle to the shore, and, rushing across the beach, take cover under a low sandbank. Here, take off my pack and I'll take off yours. We help one another to lift the heavy water-soaked packs off. Hurry up there, says our sergeant. Fix bayonets, click, and the bayonets are fixed. Forward, and away we scramble up the hills in our front. Up, up we go, stumbling in holes and ruts. With a ringing cheer, we charge the steep hill, pulling ourselves up by roots and branches of trees, at times digging our bayonets into the ground, and pushing ourselves up to a foothold, until, topping the hill, we found the enemy had made themselves very scarce. What had caused them to fly from a position from which they should have driven us back into the sea every time? A few scattered Turks showing in the distance, we instantly fired on. Some fell to rise no more, 
Others fell wounded and, crawling into the low bushes, sniped our lads as they went past. There were snipers in plenty, cunningly hidden in the hearts of the low green shrubs. They accounted for a lot of our boys in the first few days, but gradually were rooted out. Over the hill we dashed, and down into what is now called Shrapnel Gully, and up the other hillside, until, on reaching the top, we found that some of the lads of the 3rd Brigade had commenced to dig in. We skirted round to the plateau at the head of the gully, and took up our line of defence. As soon as it was light enough to see, the guns on Gaba Tepe on our right, and two batteries away on our left, opened up a murderous hail of shrapnel on our landing parties. The battleships and cruisers were continuously covering the landing of troops, broadsides going into the batteries situated in tunnels in the distant hillside. All this while the seamen from the different ships were gallantly rowing and managing the boats carrying the landing parties. Not one man that is left of the original brigade will hear a word against our gallant seamen. England may well be proud of them, and all true Australians are proud to call them comrades. See, bang, swish. The front firing line was now being baptised by its first shrapnel. Machine guns situated on each front, flank and centre, opened on our front line. Thousands of bullets began to fly round and over us, sometimes barely missing. Now and then, one heard a low gurgling moan and, turning, one saw near at hand some chum, who only a few seconds before had been laughing and joking, now lying gasping, with his lifeblood soaking down into the red clay and sand. Five rounds rapid at the scrub in front, comes the command of our subaltern, then an order down the line. Fixed bayonets. Fatal order. Was it not, perhaps, some officer of the enemy who shouted it? For they say such things were done. Out flash a thousand bayonets, scintillating in the sunlight like a thousand mirrors, signalling our position to the batteries away on our left and front. We put in another five rounds rapid at the scrub in front. Then, bang swish, bang swish, bang swish. And over our line and front and rear, such a hellish fire of lidite and shrapnel that one wonders how anyone could live amongst such a hail of death-dealing leaden shell. Ah, got me, says one lad on my left, and he shakes his arms. A bullet had passed through the biceps of his left arm, missed his chest by an inch, passed through the right forearm, and finally struck the lad between him and me a bruising blow on the wrist. The man next to him, a man from the ninth Battalion, started to bind up his wounds, as he was bleeding freely. All the time, shrapnel was hailing down on us. Oh! Comes from directly behind me, and, looking around, I see poor little Lieutenant B of C Company has been badly wounded. From both hips to his ankles, blood is oozing through pants and putties, and he painfully drags himself to the rear. With every pull, he moans cruelly. I raise him to his feet, and at a very slow pace start to help him to shelter. But alas, I have only got him about fifty yards from the firing line, when again, bang swish, and we were both peppered by shrapnel and shell. My rifle butt was broken off to the trigger guard, and I received a smashing blow that laid my cheek on my shoulder. The last I remembered was poor Lieutenant B, 
groaning again as we both sank to the ground. When I came to, I found myself in Shrapnel Gully with an AMC man holding me down. I was still clasping my half-rifle. Dozens of men and officers, both Australians and New Zealanders, who had landed a little later in the day, were coming down wounded, some slightly, some badly, with arms in slings or shot through the leg and using their rifles for crutches. Shrapnel Gully was still under shrapnel and sniper's fire. Two or three platoon mates and myself slowly moved down to the beach, where we found the Australian Army Service Corps busily engaged landing stores and water amid shrapnel fire from Gaba Tepe. As soon as a load of stores was landed, the wounded were carried aboard the empty barges, and taken to hospital ships and troop ships standing out offshore. After going to ten different boats, we came at last to the troop ship Tiang Chun, which had the 14th Australian Battalion aboard. They were to disembark the next morning, but owing to so many of us being wounded, they had to land straight away. And so, after 12 hours hard fighting, I was aboard a troop ship again, wounded, but I would not have missed it for all the money in the world. A. R. Perry, 10th Battalion, A. I. F. End of section 3